Welcome to the Mulcahy Law Firm Podcast. For over 25 years, Mulcahy Law Firm has helped plan communities and condominium associations throughout the state of Arizona. The antenna of our Zoom, Facebook Live, First Friday free call-in, videos and podcasts is to provide a forum for board members and community managers to receive answers to HOA and condo legal questions. Please note, the content of these sessions are general in nature and is not intended to and should not be relied upon or construed as legal opinion or legal advice regarding any specific issue or factual circumstance. You should directly consult with an attorney for advice regarding your individual situation. Welcome to the podcast. Here's Beth Mulcahy. Good morning, everybody. Um, as people are starting to join this morning, um, I just want to welcome everybody and hope that you're having a great March so far. I want to start out by saying first, happy early St. Patrick's Day, which is truly one of my most favorite holidays of the year because I'm Irish with my last name Mulcahy and uh, my great grandmother came to the United States from Ireland. This is one of our most favorite holidays as a family. So I hope you have a great St. Patrick's Day. We'll probably be doing something again as a firm to celebrate with a green beer maybe or some good treats in our office. So um, I'd also like to say happy Employee Appreciation Day. Some of you may not know that today is Employee Appreciation Day. And I'm very thankful for my entire Mulcahy Law Firm team who come to the office every day, give 100%, work really hard to help our clients solve their legal problems. And we also have fun and get along really well. So I'm very thankful for having such a wonderful team. My name is Beth Mulcahy, and I'm the founding attorney and senior partner for the Mulcahy Law Firm in Phoenix, Arizona. I have represented HOAs and condominiums throughout the state of Arizona for over 26 years. My firm currently represents over 1,000 planned communities and condominiums throughout the state of Arizona. I also currently serve on my HOA board, and I have for many years. Welcome to our firm's virtual First Friday free call-in for March 2023. Um, We have a lot of questions this morning. I I did a quick scan of the questions that have come in. We have about 31 questions. Remember that First Fridays are always the first Friday of every month at 9 a.m. And they're a great way to get your questions on Arizona HOA and condo law answered at no charge. Here's how First Fridays will work today. If you haven't done so already, please be sure to submit your First Friday questions in the Q&A box on Zoom or in the comments section on Facebook Live as soon as possible, please, so that we will be sure to answer them today. And then I will answer all the questions between now and 10 a.m. or however long it takes me to answer every last question. Just a quick friendly reminder, due to the large volume of questions that we receive during First Fridays, This free opportunity is limited to one question per association. If you plan on submitting a question live during this session, please be sure to include the name of your HOA or condo and your current role when you submit your question. And please be sure to submit questions that are really easy for me to understand because it's difficult for me to ask follow-up questions when we're doing a live format like this. Before I answer any questions, though, I want to just give you a quick update on what's going on in our Arizona legislature. As you know, the Arizona legislature has been in session since January 9th. Our firm is doing a weekly summary of all the bills that are pending in the legislature regarding HOAs and condominiums. There's 18 bills that have been introduced. We're closely tracking four of those bills that seem to be moving along in the process and have a high likelihood of passing this year. I recommend that if you are interested in following the new legislation that is being proposed this year, that you um, check out our website at mulcahylawfirm.com. On our homepage, we have a weekly summary 
of everything that's happening in the legislature that week and where the bills are in terms of their status. Also, we will be sharing with you in this platform right now on Zoom and Facebook Live, our 2023 legislative summary, which is the same thing that we have posted on our website. And again, that's updated every week with the most up-to-date information. Just a quick few words on this year's legislature. I mean, it's there's a lot of bills that have been introduced this year. 18 bills is a lot of bills. And there's a wide variety of topics that have been introduced this year. Kind of the four main bills that we're tracking have to do with flags, home-based businesses, regulation of parking on streets that are dedicated to the um, city, town, or municipality, and then short-term rentals, of course, and political activity in associations. So be sure to check out our 2023 legislative summary link that's we, that we shared with you right now on this platform or go to our website at mulcahylawfirm.com. Okay, let's get right into the questions. Um, it looks like I always like to give kind of an overview of how many questions we have right now. It looks like we have about 32 questions that have come in already before this uh, first Friday even started this morning. So great turnout here today. We have about 47 people joining us here uh, live on Zoom, and I'm sure there's additional persons joining us also on Facebook Live this morning. So welcome all of you. Thanks for being here on this beautiful Friday morning. Okay, the first question is from a homeowner. What is the remedy for the board when a board member proceeds with a project without the board's approval? What should the board do to correct the situation? This is actually kind of a common problem um, that comes up in associations. And I think what you need to do is just talk it through as a board. There will be times in your association where a board member, maybe it's the president or maybe it's another board member, where they have to make a call on something quickly maybe where it's an emergency situation. And in those cases, it's usually acceptable as long as they have the support of the board and they're acting in the best interests of the association. In that rare instance that that board member would be able to maybe call the insurance company and make a claim if let's say there was a fire in the common area clubhouse or something like that. But most of the time, it's it's uncustomary and it's not a good idea for one board member to move forward with a project without the board's approval. And so your board should talk about this and you should just make it clear to whoever that board member is that's moving forward on something that you really need the support of the board before you move forward on something. Now, obviously moving forward, I would consider that to be hiring a vendor, spending association funds, it's perfectly okay for a board member to do a little research and report back to the board. Um, however, I, I wouldn't recommend that that board member be doing that on the sly or anything. I think they should be open and candid with the board. Hey, I'm looking into some new vendors or I am you know, researching how we can better handle the maintenance of our common areas or you know, whatever the issue may be. But what we don't want to see in an association is a board member that's just going off on their own, doing whatever they want, you know, entangling the association into responsibilities that the rest of the board doesn't support. So my recommendation is talk about it as a board. If the board member continues to do this without the board's support, you may want to consider adopting a code of conduct for your board members. And we have a cheat sheet on that topic. And as part of that code of conduct, you could write in that individual board members cannot proceed with a project without the support of a majority of the board. Okay, next question. How do we handle a sociopath? 
This is an owner that is harassing his neighbor constantly, kicking their rocks out of place, putting trash in their area. They have called the police twice and the police state that this is private property and they can't do anything. I'm afraid someone is going to get hurt badly. Our management states that this is a personal problem and we should stay out of it, but they are asking the HOA for help. We are a planned community and nothing is private. I guess when I I look at this issue, it's not the first time, unfortunately, that we've seen this issue. So I would continue to contact the police for things that warrant police involvement. I'm not sure that, you know, some of the smaller things that I've heard here might warrant police involvement, but if anything escalates, like there's trespassing or verbal altercations, threats being made, that you definitely want to continue to have the police be involved, make a police report at the minimum. The neighbors, the neighbor that feels that they're being um, harassed, they may want to hire an attorney and have their attorney send a letter to the other neighbor telling them to cease and desist from doing this. How the association can get involved is it's kind of a he said, she she said thing, you know, in, in these kind of Hatfield and McCoy situations. What we typically will do is we have a great cheat sheet called Dealing with Difficult People and Harassment. And we'll share that cheat sheet with the person that's claiming that they're being harassed to give them some tips on some different things that they might be able to do. Hiring an attorney, like I mentioned, if there have been threats of physical harm, they also could go to their local justice court and get an injunction prohibiting harassment against this particular uh, neighbor. Continue to contact the police, document everything with photographs, you know, maybe get a little notebook going of all the different things that are happening. The only time that this might cross over into the association becoming involved in this would be if there's some threat of discrimination where maybe the one owner is discriminating against one of the other owners against, um, you know, under some of the protected classes under the Fair Housing Act. In that case, the association may need to intervene based upon some recent rulings under the Fair Housing Act. Something that we might consider doing as an association is asking the parties to come to a meeting and try to discuss the issues. Maybe there's an underlying thing, which there usually is, that can be resolved by talking about it, maybe even suggesting mediation between the parties. Um, Of course, mediation is going to take, um, both sides will have to agree to go to mediation. So check out our cheat sheet on this. I think that will give you some good tips on how you may want to proceed forward in this matter. Okay, next question. A resident wants to donate an old slot machine to our clubhouse. Our HOA will not be supplying any money for it. Do we have any liability issues in accepting it? I'm really not a gaming expert, legal expert. I don't, at first glance, see any issues with it. What you might want to do is just check with the state of Arizona gaming department to see if there are any issues with it. I'm assuming because no money is being placed in it. Um, and nobody's paying to use it, that it shouldn't be a problem. But just as a matter, of course, I would also check with the state gaming department. Uh, The next question, a newly widowed wheelchair-bound HOA resident is behind in assessments. They now claim they don't know where their checkbook is. The person's adult child serves as their caretaker. However, this caretaker seems to be inebriated. Do we institute a lien on this person's unit or is there an alternative? Is there a social agency the board can contact to report the obviously disheartening situation of this person? 
you know, really sad to hear this story, of course. Um, we're going to be sharing with you a link to Arizona's Adult Protective Services. You may want to consider contacting them if you're concerned about the welfare and well-being of the resident who appears to be handicapped and newly widowed. Another thing that I would recommend is that the board just send a courtesy reminder letter if you haven't already. Lots of times when there is, you know, a recent passing of a family member and maybe that person was taking care of the expenses and the finances for that family, sometimes there's a transition period. So, you know, reaching out to them with a, a courtesy reminder letter and give them, you know, a reasonable period of time to pay it like 14 days. And if they don't, then I would send a more formal letter saying this isn't brought current. We will have to move forward with leaning the property. And just because the person is, is handicapped, they still do need to pay assessments. So I would make at least two efforts before you would escalate this and, and record a lien on the property. Okay, the next question. Our HOA is trying to build our reserve account for needed special projects. Our management company suggested a capital investment. This would assess homeowners and future buyers a set dollar amount. On your program, capital assessment has been mentioned, which would assess buyers a percentage of the selling price of their new home. Can an HOA have both in their CCNRs, a capital investment for quick funding building, and then convert to a capital assessment or more at a close of sale? We're in the process of updating our CCNRs. Okay, two cheat sheets that I want you to look at from our firm that I think would be helpful helpful in navigating this process. Well, number one, you want to look at our amending CCNRs five-step plan if you're in the middle of amending your CCNRs, because that just gives you a great overview of how to successfully amend your association's documents. Secondly, I'd like you to take a look at our cheat sheet on community association disclosure and transfer fees. And also the cheat sheet on reserve funds for community associations. So those three cheat sheets should definitely help you through this process. In terms of, you know, what you're proposing here today, if you're trying to build your reserve account, one way to do that is to have a capital improvement fee or a transfer fee that you charge to new buyers when they purchase a unit or lot in your association. And the best way or the only way to do that is to put that in your CCNR amendment that you're proposing. And our firm has some language that we suggest for capital improvement fees or transfer fees, and the language needs to comply with the state statute. And all of this is on our cheat sheet on disclosure and transfer fees, the specific reference to the statute. So I really encourage you to take a look at that. So that's one way to fund your reserve by any new buyer that purchases a lot or unit in your association, they pay like a, a fee and that money goes directly to the reserve account. Another way to fund your reserve account is to, on a monthly basis, the board just puts money in there pursuant to your reserve study that you've done. Hopefully you have a reserve study that's been done by a reserve specialist and they should tell you like for my association we put aside something like $33,000 every month into our reserve or our long-term capital improvement projects. If your budget doesn't allow you to do that, meaning, you know, when you set your budget every year, you really should factor in, okay, we need to be putting this much money away into the reserve every month, so that should just be factored in. If you haven't done that, you also could consider doing a special assessment 
of your member, of your current membership, and have that special assessment fund the reserve specifically. So you're going to have to check your CCNRs to see what the, you know, how the special assessment is set up for your association. And if you have to have a percentage vote, which I'm, I'm sure you probably do, can you use a special assessment for this purpose? You want to specifically look at that special assessment language in your documents. Okay, next question. I'm a former board member and I'm running for the board of directors again. Recently, members, including myself, have submitted document requests in an attempt to expose the current board's violation of the open meeting law. Now, the current board president is campaigning against me and in favor of other candidates that are like-minded, candidates that may not hold the board accountable regarding the open meeting law. Can anything be done to limit the negative campaigning by current board members? Um, this is an interesting question. Well, first of all, I want to make sure that you look at our cheat sheet on board meetings and um, the Arizona Open Meeting Law, because those would be two really good resources for you as you determine whether there are violations of the Open Meeting Law or not. I don't know what specifically you claim your board is violating under the Open Meeting Law. Maybe you think that the board is making decisions by email or having secret meetings. Um, or maybe they're not giving the proper notice that they're required to, the 48 hours notice in advance of the board meeting. It's perfectly okay for members to request documents to find out more information about how things are running at your association. So you are within every right to do that as a homeowner. We really shy away from telling board members or we advise board members not to get involved in campaigning for other candidates that are running for the board. We think it's just not something that is appropriate to do. That being said, you know, there's no specific law that pro prohibits them from doing this. The best case scenario would be, of course, you're allowed to campaign for yourself if you're running for the board. And you're allowed to say, there's a slate of board members and there's maybe they say there's three board members and I'm one of them, let's say. And, you know, we're all running together as a slate of candidates because we have a common objective about things we want to accomplish in the association. That's fine. If I guess I'm not sure exactly what negative campaigning they're doing, but really board members should refrain from making any negative comments about any candidate that's running for the board that's unprofessional and really not in the best interests of the association. Of course, a board member can have an opinion, like I would prefer this candidate over the other candidate. That's their right. But keeping it clean and fair is important so that the board can have credibility. And so, you know, you can disagree on things as a board and it shouldn't get personal in a campaign or even when you're serving on the board with another board member. So can anything be done to limit this? Probably not. If they're, if any of the board members are saying false things about you, you know, you could write them a letter or have an attorney write them a letter telling them to retract it or cease and desist from making that comment going forward. Okay, the next question is question number seven. We have a homeowner refusing to paint his home unless it's the original color from the 1994 to 1996 era. Honestly, no one knows what those colors were. The developer can't even tell us. The homeowner put in an ARC request for a pink color. We do not have pink in our color palette. The property management is telling us, per their lawyer, if this disapproval went to court, the homeowner would always win. What can we do to solve this problem? The homeowner is now rejecting our certified letters. 
Okay, we have two cheat sheets that I think would be really helpful to give you some good information as you navigate this problem. So one on architectural review committees. Um, and then the second one is on enforcement at governing documents. We're going to be sharing them with you on the Zoom call. And also, you can always go to our website to find them at mulcahylawfirm.com. Okay, so if I were evaluating this problem, what I would do is I would look at what does the language in your CCNR say about architectural review? I'm guessing that it's very general language saying that any sort of exterior modification to a home requires the prior um, written approval of the association's board or the architectural committee. So if you have a homeowner who wants to repaint their home, it is customary that the board would receive an application for that and the board could approve or deny that application based upon a number of factors as will be outlined in your CCNRs. Usually it's like the aesthetic of the surrounding neighbors. Will it jive with that? Is it an approved color from the color palette if you have a color palette? I'm guessing what's happening here is maybe that the color that they had their home previously was pink. That's kind of what I'm reading in between the lines here. And they want to repaint it that same color. Just because it was pink before doesn't mean it's going to be, you have to approve it to be pink in the future. The board should look at, you know, the surrounding neighborhood and hopefully you have a color palette. Um, a lot of the paint companies will come out and do approved color palette for you. So then it makes it really easy. You can just say, okay, you can paint your home one of these six colors or four colors or three colors. I'm not really seeing it. I mean, I don't have all the facts here, of course, but I'm not really seeing that if a disapproval went to court, the homeowner would always win. I mean, I just think that's a very broad, broad brush statement. My feeling on this is, is that the board should look at what the CCNR say, independently evaluate the paint color that the homeowner, you know, wants to paint it. If it's not an approved color, maybe give them some suggestions on what would be. But for the homeowner to hold the board like hostage saying, I'm not going to paint my house when it needs to be painted unless I get my pink color, I just don't think that's going to fly. Okay, next question, number eight. At our annual meeting, can homeowners make motions from the floor that must be voted on? Great question. So we have um, a cheat sheet on annual meetings that I would recommend that you take a look at because it has a lot of great information on it. And we also have a number of articles that we've written on annual meetings over the years as well. How it typically works at an annual meeting is it is the meeting of the membership and you are required to have it one a year. But even though it's the homeowner's annual meeting, the homeowners don't run the meeting. So typically what happens is that the board runs the annual meeting and homeowners are allowed to comment during a comment period. Oftentimes, what we do at an annual meeting is the board opens the meeting, we establish a quorum, the president gives a report, the treasurer gives a report, the management company gives a report, and then we announce the election results. And maybe before the announcement of the election results, there's a homeowner forum where homeowners can get up and say anything that they would like to say about the association or have questions answered. It's not customary that homeowners make motions from the floor. Um, I have seen some homeowners try to do it. Like I, I make a motion to amend the bylaws. 
that's not going anywhere because that's not the process to amend the bylaws. So if a homeowner makes a motion, I think the best way to to handle it is to um, just say, well, we appreciate you coming. And we understand that this is an issue that's important to you. This is not the time to vote on um, this motion, but we welcome your input. And as a board, we will discuss this at a future board meeting and leave it at that. Okay, um, next question. Our CCNR state that there is no on-street overnight parking. We have signs posted and we have reminded our homeowners about this via email and newsletter. Yet we have several homeowners who continue to park on the street overnight. Other than sending letters and issuing fines, what can we do? Okay, we have a great blog as a firm that we've written on parking violations. We also have a cheat sheet on enforcement of governing documents, which we're going to be sharing with you. And you can also find those on our firm's website, mulcahylawfirm.com. Parking is always a difficult situation because oftentimes overnight parking happens at 10 or 11 or midnight where we don't have parking monitors out, you know, monitoring the parking. So how have some associations handled this? Um, some associations hand, have hired companies that come through the community throughout the, the night and they will tag cars that are in violation of the parking rules. Some associations have the right to boot or tow. That would need to be in your association's CCNRs for you to be able to do that. Many associations who don't have that right to boot or tow, they will place those really large stickers, sticky stickers on the driver's side window, um, just letting them know that they're in violation. They shouldn't be parking here. You know, that's another inexpensive tool. You already mentioned that you potentially fine the owners um, and sending letters. If the problem is escalating to the point that it's really becoming an issue or a safety issue in your community, you may want to consider filing a lawsuit against the owner or going to the Arizona Department of Real Estate and um, filing a complaint there, asking for an administrative law judge to rule that the owner is in violation of the documents. Um, So I think those give you some different suggestions on how this can be handled. Okay, question number 10. A condominium sub-association within a master association has a common area deed issue. The developer did not deed over the common area as defined in the plat to the sub-association, as it did with the other sub-associations. The assessor's office shows all common areas held by the master association and all property tax correspondence goes to the master association. The sub-association has maintained the common area since the beginning, and this area includes a pool. What are the negative consequences in continuing this deed area? Liability and insurance ramifications. Okay, it sounds like this, and this is something that we do see from time to time, mistakes by the developer at the time of transition when they should have been deeding the common areas to the association. I'm a little bit confused because it appears that the common areas may have been deeded to the master association instead of the sub-association. Apparently, it sounds like the developer did do it properly for the other sub-associations, but not your sub-association. So if I were tackling this problem, I would, you know, there's a couple of things to look at. You're wondering what the negative consequences are. I'm, you know, worrying about how could this, do we need, should we be correcting this problem? 
And I think probably what I would do to start out would be I would go to the master board, have the sub association go to the master board and point out the issue and see if they have any information on it. Because maybe there was some sort of an amended declaration or amended plat that was filed later. And this particular common area parcel was transferred to the association and it's documented that that's the way it was supposed to be. If it isn't the way it's supposed to be and, and either the master association doesn't care to change it or they're blowing you off, what I would recommend is that the sub-association have their attorney look at this issue and send a formal letter to the master association and their attorney and try to work it out that way. I don't like having this problem hanging out there because if the master association has the deed for the area, that means that they could always change you know, the use of it or they have control of it. And um, if it was intentionally supposed to be the sub-association's property, I really think it's important that you look into getting that back. So what are some negative consequences is that, you know, the master association, it's apparently appears to be their property, right? And they, you know, have authority over it and can make rules for it and can possibly even change the use for it. So that's a concern. A negative consequence for the association is you may have to pay back taxes on it. It will probably be de minimis because of the consolidation law, which consolidates all the common areas, very low tax bills, but you'll have to pay taxes going forward if you get this corrected. And the correction would be if the master association has ownership on this common area, they would just deed it to the sub-association if the parties could agree on it. You know, I don't know if this is something that's currently covered under your insurance, but you may want to check with your insurance agent because even though you may not own it, I would still, as a precautionary matter, make sure that your insurance covers this area because it could be argued that there's a mistake. And if you weren't carrying insurance on it and there was an accident, it could be a problem. So I think I'd have tried to reach out and informally discuss it with the Master Association consider hiring your attorney. Um, we've handled a number of these cases in the past. We'd be happy to help you with this if you need help on it. Okay, next question. Um, number 11, our community has a news blast monthly put out by the management company, which the association pays for. There is a Facebook page under the community's name that is moderated by a member, but is supposed to be for social activities only. It is closed to board members, but open to other residents. It has come to the attention of the board and management company that a member is posting hateful rhetoric and naming the board president and community manager publicly on this social media page. Should this be turned over to the association's legal advisor for a cease and desist letter to be sent out? I would. Oftentimes, you know, we see either on Nextdoor or, you know, maybe there's a alternate, you know, shadow group that's running a Facebook page. It can cause problems if there's misinformation being posted on that. And so I think it would warrant a letter from the association's lawyer. Obviously, you're going to have to have access to it to make sure that, you know, whatever you're arguing that they're doing that's wrong, actually factual. Question number 12, would you give a brief overview of waiver of rights? The example I can think of is an HOA's CCNRs cover parking in the community but the rules have not been enforced in a number of years. Because of ongoing issues, the board has decided now to enforce the parking in the CCNRs. I've heard that because the parking rules have not been enforced, they no longer apply. I've also heard that as long as the CCNRs 
have a non-waiver provision, the board can go back to enforcing. So an overview would be appreciated. Okay, so how waiver works is if there has been a violation in the association and the association has, enfor- has not enforced it for, let's say, two or three years, an argument can be made as a defense by the owner that the associations waive their rights to enforce it. So a good example of this would be, let's say somebody paints their house and they don't get architectural approval and it's been painted for, let's say, like eight years it's going to be very difficult, if not impossible, for the association to enforce um, making that owner repaint it until, you know, the paint job is to the point where it's beyond its useful life. Because we didn't act on it promptly as an association, we may have waived our right to enforce it. On parking, that's a little bit different situation, though, because parking, it's a new violation every day. And so, you know, the cars are being moved, et cetera. And so I don't think the waiver argument works as well for that. And I think that's a tough win. Frankly, I, I, I don't think that the car is being moved every day. It's a new violation every day. So if the parking rules haven't been enforced, I, I don't agree with the statement that they no longer apply. We do use the non-waiver provision, you know, just because we may not have enforced it in one situation doesn't mean that it invalidates us from enforcing it in another situation. And so, you know, that is something that the board definitely can rely on to continue enforcing their documents if maybe there was a a mistake that was made um, on not enforcing the paint color of the house or whatever. Okay, um, the next question, number 13. In 2015, our HOA amended the CCNRs on several topics, including adding rental restrictions, changing age restrictions, and adjusting our annual dues amounts. Under the Callaway decision, do these changes to our CCNRs not apply to residents who bought their homes prior to these changes unless 100% of the residents agreed to the changes? Our CCNRs allow amendments to the CCNRs and such amendments are effective when recorded. Okay, so a couple things. Your association's CCNRs, they were amended in 2015. There's a six-year statute of limitations to sue for any, if you were going to make file a lawsuit, to sue for invalidity of any of these amendments. So you're well beyond the statute of limitations. So owners would be prohibited from challenging the 2015 amendments to the CCNR. So regardless of the Callaway decision, there is no way to undo those 2015 changes, in my opinion. Now, that being said, I just want to make a brief comment on the Callaway decision. There's a lot of misinformation out there regarding the Callaway case. And I mean, this is probably the third time in the past three days where I've mentioned this to um, either people that have called into my office asking about it or just general questions that have come up in our industry. The Callaway case, there's a misinformation that the Callaway case prohibits associations from any amendments to CCNRs, and that is is not the case. We have information on our website. If you go to our website, um, an interpretation of the Callaway case, and I would really encourage you to take a look at it. Basically, that case does make it a little bit more difficult for associations to do amendments to their CCNRs, but it does not make it impossible. The amendments have to be reasonable and foreseeable. And um, it does, does not say in every instance that now you need 
approval of the members to do an amendment to the CCNRs. So that is just false. And it's a false narrative that's, I don't know why this is being promoted in our industry, but it's not correct. I would encourage you to go to our website. We have a blog on this topic, I'm sure. And read that the blog that we've written on the Callway case to get more background information on what it means and how it may affect your association. Okay, question 14. The board has failed to conduct an annual meeting due to a lack of quorum. No attempt was made to reschedule an annual meeting. The board states that there is no law requiring them to attempt to conduct an annual meeting until quorum is met. So no annual meeting is held. Is the board in violation of the statute that requires an annual meeting to be held? Okay, so under Arizona law, well, first we have that great cheat sheet that I talked about on annual meetings, how to have a successful annual meeting. And I would recommend that you take a look at that as a baseline. And we're sharing it with you on Zoom. And we also have it on our website at mulcahylawfirm.com. Okay, so under Arizona law, you are required to have an annual meeting every year. Now, if you attempt to have an annual meeting and you cannot get a quorum, you at least made a good faith effort to have the annual meeting. We, as best practices, we advise our clients to try again one more time. And if they don't get it after the second attempt, uh, then we say just keep the current board members in place until the next annual meeting and move forward. You don't have an annual meeting that year. Is there a state law that makes you continue to attempt to have an annual meeting until you get a quorum? No, but I do think the board should make a good faith effort. And I think the good faith effort best practices would be to at least make more than one attempt to have an annual meeting each year. But again, it's not the law that you have to continue to attempt to have it if you can't get a quorum after the first try. Okay, the next question, question number 15, and I've just been told that we have about 40 questions, so we're moving right along. The association is responsible for maintenance, repair, and replacement of landscaping for limited use, limited common use area, which is the homeowner's lot that is not within their enclosed backyard. Can the association at its expense convert the grass on the limited common use area to Xeriscape without the homeowner's consent. So I'm a little bit mixed up about this question because usually limited common areas or limited common elements would be the exclusive use area of the owner. So it seems to kind of conflict here because you're saying that it says it's the homeowner's lot that is not within their enclosed backyard. So if I were evaluating this, I would first, you know, look at the CCNRs and determine What's common areas? What's limited common areas? What rights does the association have in these areas? So it's, it's difficult for me to give a, a broad brush answer here that the association's board can convert the limited common use area to Xeriscape without the homeowner's consent. So I'd have to look at the documents on this. You know, anytime the board is converting turf to Xeriscape, you need to have a really good public relations campaign because. Some people get very upset when they lose grass, but there is a need to do this because of the water restrictions that are coming into play in Arizona. There's already a water management program in place. And if your association has a lot of turf, you may in the future be required to reduce the size of that turf to limit the amount of water that's being used to water it. So there are good reasons to, to convert to Xeriscape. And in my experience, I love grass. I'm from Wisconsin, so you know I love grass. 
But I can say honestly that a lot of times the xeriscaping with a little bit less grass sometimes looks cleaner and nicer in the long run. I can't answer this question without looking at your documents, but I would look at who maintains limited common areas. Where is this area in question? And is it an area that the association would have the authority, the legal authority to do this? Um, and again, I wouldn't do it without getting buy-in and having you know meetings to show the owners what it's going to look like so they're not upset. Okay, next question. Can lot file information be digitalized or must they remain hard copies? So we have some great cheat sheets on this topic for you. Um, we have one on technology and community associations and another one on community association records and documents that I would encourage you to look at. So can lot file information be digitalized? Of course, and that's probably the trend for the future. You want to make sure that if it is digitalized, that it's saved in the cloud so that um, in case there's any sort of a computer glitch that you have access to it. Next question. My question regards our financial statements, which have been habitually mo motioning to approve and accept at regular meetings. We are evaluating alternate property management companies. And an item that has come up several times in my interviews with other directors is we should only be noting the financial statements as received and filed. The moment we accept financial statement as presented, we've shifted the responsibility for the content of the financial statement from our property management company to the board. Is this correct? Well, you know, this is an interesting question. There is probably no requirement under the law. I've never seen a requirement in the CCNRs and there's no requirement under Arizona law for the association's board to accept or to vote to accept the financial statements. What I would recommend is going forward, just have the treasurer or the manager go over the financial statement with the board at the meeting so that there's time spent evaluating it. I mean, the bottom line is you're, the board has liability no matter what, um, and you're not shifting the liability by voting on it or not voting on it. The board is responsible for the finances of the association. Ultimately, the buck stops at them, specifically with the treasurer and collectively as a board. So you need to be reviewing it and monitoring it and making sure that everything is in order. Whether you vote to accept it or not accept it, I, I don't think it takes liability away from the management company and I don't think it shifts it to the board, but it just, it's a kind of a doesn't matter issue. The most important thing is that you're carefully looking at the financial statements every month. Okay, next question, number 18. Finding a management company for a smaller community has been difficult. We have 142 homes in the community. We have reviewed your cheat sheet on the subject. Any additional advice? We seem to be big, too big for some and too small for others. Okay, so we have a great cheat sheet called How to Select a Management Company, um, which we're going to be sharing with you on Zoom and on Facebook Live. Um, you can also find it on our website at mokahilawfirm.com. I think what you need to do is my advice to you on this would be you're a small community. So you're probably going to want to look for a smaller management company can give you a little bit more personalized service. And if you contact me outside of First Fridays um, and tell me a little bit more about your community, where you're geographically located, um, what type of issues and problems you have in your association, I think I can refer you to several management companies that I think might be a good fit who work with 
smaller HOAs and condominiums, and they would be more likely to bid on um, and to accept management of your association. Next question, question 19. We've been asked to grant variances for new HVACs that are protruding into easement areas. HVACs are getting larger. What language should we use or other steps in granting a variance to protect the HOA? So in this situation, somebody's installing a air conditioning units and they're protruding into areas that may be like the common areas of the association is what I'm understanding. You know, this is kind of unusual, but I am familiar with this particular association and they have an unusual configuration in terms of um it's almost like a condominium, so to speak, because there's common areas and then the this particular association. The properties are it's almost like a condo. So it's if you don't put it in the the property, it's gonna have to be on the common areas. So what I would do is I would recommend that you reach out to our firm. I think that there should be something in writing on this. I'd also want to look at whether or not it's allowable to put something like this on the common areas and if an amendment to the CCNRs might be necessary. But we definitely would need to document this in writing so that there's a good paper trail. Question number 20, and let me just do a check at how many total questions we have. Okay, we've got 41 right now, so we're almost at the halfway point. Okay, question 20. Our association is currently conducting a board of directors election. It consists of using a third-party phone app, which we have successfully used for many years, and traditional paper ballots as well. For the first time ever, there's a group of residents alleging election fraud, alleging the board and our management company are conspiring to rig the election. Every day features a new untrue allegation. Are there any best practices we should look at to counteract these untrue allegations? A couple things. So remember that under Arizona law, you have the right to collect, to have electronic voting in um, your elections or any time where there's a vote to the membership. So Arizona law envisions that this type of, you know, balloting in addition to paper balloting and being able to vote in person at a meeting will be used. I don't know how anything about this third party phone app. And so what I would recommend is that you get out information to the community about how the system works. Um, and give them assurances that there is nothing unusual. There's no sort of rigging of the election, et cetera. I know that there are some highly regarded HOA and condo online voting companies. You may want to consider switching to one of them in the future because a phone party app, I, I'm not familiar with that. And so until I would be able to understand better how that phone app would work, you know, I, I can't comment on whether, you know, it's a safe way to take ballots or et cetera, or to accept votes. So if I were in your shoes, you're you're already in the middle of a board of directors election. So it's already out there that you're using the phone app and there's some allegations. So I think the board needs to step up and communicate how this phone app works, give assurances that there is no funny business going on. Maybe you need, even need to have a town hall meeting I'd probably start with a letter explaining everything and consider having a town hall meeting to air grievances. If you think that's something that's necessary, it's risen to that point that people are really upset about it. That would be a good way just to get to the bottom of it right away. Next question, number 21. 
We've adopted the following rule in our rules and regulations. It's been passed, adopted, and also recorded. No person, unit owner, agent, heir, or sign, nor board shall rent or lease any unit to any person for any reason. Under Arizona law, is this ironclad? And if not, is there any way to make it so? As we do not want rentals of any kind in our HOA. Okay, great question. Earlier in our presentation, I mentioned our cheat sheet on amending association CCNRs. We're going to be sharing that with you right now again. On the flip side of that sheet is a summary of implementing rental restrictions. Because you made this a rule and it's not a CCNR amendment, an amendment to your Declaration of Covenants, Conditions, and Restrictions, it likely is not enforceable. And you do need to amend your association CCNRs to include that provision. So I'd encourage you to take a look at that cheat sheet to help you navigate that process. Question number 22, our HOA updated our bylaws and CCNRs in 2020. The PDF for the bylaws is searchable and that is a feature we use regularly. However, the PDF of the CCNRs appears to have been created by a copy process which produces a PDF that is essentially only a photo of the document and is not searchable. How can we obtain a searchable PDF of our CCNRs? So what you would want to do is just email the firm that prepared the amendment and ask them to provide you with a PDF version that is searchable. Question number 23, our CCNRs state we have the right to enter the property to cure a violation. Is this allowed for landscape only? weeds, overgrown bushes, overgrown trees? Or are we able to clean up the entire property if it's an eyesore, such as empty, broken pots, debris? Are we violating the homeowner's rights or any city of Scottsdale ordinances? Okay, so if I were looking at this issue, what I would do is I would look at the specific language in the CCNRs, like how broad is it? Does it say that you can correct any violation, which appears that you seem to be appear to saying? I would be really wary of removing an owner's property and taking it somewhere else, even if it's like broken pots, you know, empty pots, debris. We have seen things over the years in um, our practice where if an association takes an owner's property and removes it, that there could be a claim that somebody's stolen their property. So I would be wary of doing that. I think going in and doing the landscaping, I'd, I'd like to see your documents, what it says about the authority to um, self-help or cure a violation. But typically what that means is like cleaning up the property, possibly repainting the property. Those are the type of things that we typically will see for self-help provision, trimming trees, trimming palm trees, cutting the grass, et cetera. Okay, question number 24 from our CCNRs. This declaration may be amended only by an affirmative vote of two-thirds majority of the lot owners and the declarant. Does the declarant have one vote in the total or is there affirmative vote required in addition to those of the lot owners, effectively giving them veto power over a proposed amendment? Basically, this is, I, I hate it when I see these provisions in the documents, because especially when it's like 20 years after the developer has moved on, the way that this is worded, as you gave me in quotes, is that you need the two-thirds majority of the lot owners separately, 
and then you need the approval of the declarant. Hopefully you still can contact the declarant and get their approval. This may be something that you may want to look a little more carefully because sometimes that's only while the declarant is in declarant control. So I want to see that sentence in the full context of the document. If that is what it says, you may want to go to the declarant and ask the declarant if we can get their approval just to amend that section to take them out of there. Okay, next question. A motion to pay an invoice was tabled until the next board meeting because some members of the board did not receive a copy of the invoice, it's $2,100, prior to that meeting. Before the next meeting took place, the board president told the treasurer and administrator to pay the invoice, which the treasurer and the administrator did. Was it legal for the president to authorize the invoice to be paid since the motion to pay it was tabled until the next meeting and it was not voted on by the whole board to be paid? I mean, at first glance, based upon the evidence that you've given me, it doesn't sound right, but I don't know the, all the facts. Like, I don't know if the vendor said they were going to sue us if, you know, we didn't pay it immediately or if there was going to be large interest charges or, uh, but it does seem odd that this president took that action, especially based upon the $2,100 amount. Now, if it was just a matter of it was tabled because we didn't have enough time, you know, and the work was done. I, I still don't like that the president went around the board, but there may be some extenuating circumstances that I'm not aware of that really warranted this being paid. But at first glance, I don't like what I'm hearing. Okay, question 26. Our management company tells us that they can send by mail the 2023 budget quarterly statement, notice of meetings up to the required notification dates. They've always been down to the wire with these notifications. They arrive by snail mail several days late. I think they are referring to the Postmark Payment Act. If there are any laws that states notification of any of these can be sent without regard to delivery, they just state it was postmate February 27th to the March 16th meeting, giving the required 15-day notice. Quarterly invoiced postmark December 30th for January 1st due dates. Okay, a couple things to think about. I would recommend that you ask the management company to send things out sooner. You know, maybe we need to start implementing use of email to get it out faster. If you're required to send something by U.S. mail under your documents or under state law, it sounds like they're just meeting the bare minimum, but that doesn't really help your owners because in some cases you get the bill on the 30th and it's due the first. I mean, that's obviously putting the homeowners in a bind. So I would, you know, try to talk with the management company and say, it's really important to us that we get these mailings out sooner. What can we do to facilitate that? Also, some of these things may not need to go by U.S. mail. Of course, notice of meetings, um, like if it's an annual meeting that does need to be sent by U.S. mail. Um, but some of these other things, you know, like the budget, maybe you could send that by email or have it on your website. But I think good communication is in order here and um, just making sure that we give as much notice as possible going forward. Question number 27, given the requirements of ARS 33-1248-E4 relating to the open meeting laws and according to ARS 33-1249-B related to the establishment of quorums, how can a board that consists of only four members ever have conversations about topics dealing with the association between two such members. If a question comes up that requires an answer, 
How can two members of a four-member board ever discuss the question without being in violation of the above reference statutes? Okay, so the question here is regarding the open meeting law, and it says that anytime a quorum of the board is present discussing association business, that it is um, an open meeting. And, you know, those members would have to have those conversations in an open board meeting after 48 hours notice to the membership is given. Now, I don't have your CCNR, so I don't, or your bylaws, so I don't know if you're supposed to have a four-member board or if you're supposed to have a five-member board. A quorum of a board, in, and I don't know what your quorum is because I'd have to see your bylaws too. Typically, a quorum is a majority. So two out of four is not a majority. Um, so that may be a workaround for those two to be able to have, you know, a discussion of a question. So if it's a five-member board, it's a three would be a quorum. Typically, if it's a four-member board, you usually need to have a majority. So two would, would still be less than a majority. So it's probably okay for them to have a discussion outside of a board meeting. Okay, question number 28. Can surrounding neighbors attend HOA board meetings to voice concerns? We assume yes. And if so, would they voice their concern during the open forum? Note, concern is due to neighbors feeling lighting in the rebuilt carport is intruding into their property. The city of Tempe approved the electrical plan and signed off on the lighting installation after inspection and a light study. Okay, so the question is, can we have people who are from outside of our community come to our board meeting and voice concerns? Um, I mean, there's no legal right for them to be there. So the only people that are allowed to attend board meetings would be homeowners. Of course, we want to be good neighbors. So if you want to talk with the neighbors about this, you could have a separate meeting with them. Or of course, you could invite them to the homeowner forum during your meeting or have a special agenda item for them. What you may want to do is um, just listen to what they have to say and think about, is there anything that we can do to alleviate their concerns? Like if the lighting that we've installed in some way is beaming into their property? Is there anything that we might be able to do to make that situation better? Basically, what I would recommend in the situation is have time to talk with them, think about what are some things that you could do to be a good neighbor, and move forward. Next question, number 29. By a majority vote of the board, the association may, from time to time and subject to the provisions of this declaration, adopt, amend, and repeal rules and regulations known as the rules. Such rules will have the same force and effect as if they were set forth in and were part of the declaration. The question is, can rules that are not referenced in the declaration be enforceable? Can the board just recreate rules without any involvement from the community? So the way that this section is written in your documents, it says that a majority vote of the board can adopt rules. They've got to be you know, consistent with what the CCNRs say. And such rules are going to have the same effect as if they were part of the declaration. So can rules that are not referenced in the declaration be enforceable? Yes, they can, but they have to be, they're subject to the provisions of the declaration. So they can't state something that's different than what the declaration says. And, you know, this is kind of a poorly worded rules section, but I do think that rules can be enforceable for your community. It's just that we have to be careful how we tailor the rules so that they're not in conflict with the declaration. And most typically, rules are regarding the use and enjoyment of the common areas. And maybe 
um, the behavior of residents within the association. This is kind of a, a gray area because your section on rules is so broadly worded. So the next question, I do think you can create rules that will be enforceable. I would work with your attorney to do that, um, to make sure that you comply with the terms of the declaration. Can the board just create rules without any involvement from the community? Well, by law, um, the board you know, needs to create rules during an open board meeting. So they're alone. Homeowners want to come and listen to the board as they're doing the rulemaking discussion and voting. That would be considered involvement. Um, also, the notice of the board meeting, the regular board meeting where you're going to be discussing any sort of a rule change, that should be listed on the agenda and the notice of the meeting so that owners would know that this is a topic that's going to be discussed and they can attend that meeting if they so choose. Okay, next question, number 30. Our CCNRs are 50 plus years old, so they're very outdated. It takes 100% of owners and any financial institutions who are involved with the owners, like a mortgage holder, to change them. It takes two thirds of the owners to approve changes of the bylaws. Are we better on focusing, are we better off focusing on updating the bylaws and using those as our primary documents, putting the CCNRs in the background? Um, so we have two really good cheat sheets that will help you. As mentioned previously, we've got our amending CCNRs um, and implementing rental restrictions cheat sheet. And then we also have our cheat sheet called What is a Community Association? Okay, so it's unusual that your CCNRs require 100% approval to amend them. So I would like to take a little closer look at that. It just seems very unusual. You know, you might be able to use, you know, one of the restatements to help you on that. I don't know if it actually says 100% of the owners or if it just doesn't say a percentage to amend it. But you need to take or you need to talk with like our firm or another attorney that's well versed in this area to make sure you've got that right, because that's very unusual. If you do have that provision that says 100% and it's in your documents, you may want to try to amend that section to make it more reasonable, like 67%. So you would have to get 100% of the owners to amend that section to lower it. You know, I'm not really in favor of changing the bylaws to you know, make changes to the CCNRs. Bylaws are typically the how to run the association's board. Um, and the CCNRs are typically the use restrictions. And so you don't really want the bylaws to cross over into CCNRs territory. And courts don't look favorably upon um, associations that amend the bylaws when they really should be putting the amendments in the CCNRs. Okay, next question, um, number 31. Can a homeowner ask to review the contract between the HOA and the management company? So yes, you can. And we have a blog written on um, a similar topic, which is how to handle records requests by owners. And we're sharing that with you now on Zoom and Facebook Live. If you want to review the contract as an owner, you just put the request in writing. The one thing that you need to be aware of is that the amount that is paid to the vendor can be redacted or blackened out if the association chooses to do so. And that's right part, that's right in the statute that um, any compensation paid to um, an independent contractor or an employer um, can be withheld. Now, if you're an association that's getting a records request like this, just recognize that it's there's so many places that the homeowner can look to see how much this vendor is getting paid. It may not make sense to play hide the ball and redact the amount or blacken out the amount so that they don't know. They can look at the check register. They can look at the 
budget, you know, there's a number of different places that they can look to determine how much this vendor is being paid. And it just doesn't make sense to me to blacken that out. Okay, question 32. Can an HOA board unilaterally decide to remove one of our two pools? If not, is that percentage vote of the owners valid to change? Okay, so I'd have to look at your association's documents. Um, it looks like you're playing community based upon what you're saying, but usually there's something in the the association's documents that says any change or use of the property may need to be a vote of the membership, may need to be done. Regardless of what your documents state, you know, well, first I would check your documents. If you're an association, I would have your association's legal counsel give you a written opinion on whether or not you can do this and how you can do it. And if you don't need to have approval of the membership, you need a huge PR campaign to your members explaining why you're doing this and what you're going to do with that land so that you don't have a complete uproar of your residence. Question 33, is it uncommon to request liability and workman's comp certificate of insurance as additional insured for an HOA. So we have a great cheat sheet on insurance that we're going to be sharing with you um, on Facebook Live and also on Zoom here. So is it uncommon to request this? It's not uncommon. As a matter of fact, anytime that you hire a vendor in your association, you should be asking for proof that they are licensed, bonded, and insured. Um, and so, and you're doing that as a protection for the association, because if they aren't licensed, bonded, and insured, you know, the association is potentially going to have increased liability and potentially a lot of problems. Okay, next question. How do I get investors to make improvements to their property, like painting their property? Um, this is really just basically a violation issue. So if the property is in need of maintenance, you just treat it like any other property where we send reminder notices we, you know, may threaten self-help if you have that in your CCNRs that you're able to go into the property and, and paint it. We threaten that and we follow the procedures for that. If you have that, not every association has that. We find the owner or not taking care of their property. Um, you can consider going to the Arizona Department of Real Estate, making a complaint against that owner and having a hearing in front of an administrative law judge. You also could file a lawsuit against the um, investor asking the court to compel them to paint the property. Typically with investors, I mean, there's two kinds. There's one that's just buying the property and they're going to lease it out and they're going to be there forever. And they're going to you know, have tenants coming in and out. And then there's one investor that may be coming in quick, selling it quick. you know. And so you have to just determine what type of investor this is. If they're coming in quick and selling it quick and they're refusing to do it, what I would suggest that you do is place on the disclosure statement that you give when the investor is selling it to a buyer. Let the buyer know, hey, this is a violation and this needs to be corrected so that the buyer and the investor negotiate that as part of the sale. And it typically will get done at that point. Okay, next question. Question 35. Our HOA has many resolutions and policies in our governances. In order to activate them, should they be voted on by the board and recorded in the minutes? Okay, great question. I really do not like it when associations have resolutions and policies that are outside of the meeting minutes because the meeting minutes are the official action of what the association's board has decided. 
And so it's really kind of an outdated thing to do resolutions and policies unless the resolutions policies are like rules or rules of the association. Um, So what I would suggest is if your association has had a history of doing this, you may want to incorporate those into the minutes. Or if there are types of things that should be in rules, you may want to amend the rules to include this information. That would be my recommendation so that there's a history and, you know, there's longevity on these particular decisions that have been made by the board. Next question, 36. My management company is stating we cannot bring our filled out secret annual meeting election ballots to the election meeting. We must fill out another ballot at the meeting. Is this an Arizona law? So this is kind of an, uh, a good question. So how it typically works for an annual meeting is the board will mail out the annual meeting notice with a ballot and then any accompanying information that might be needed for the annual meeting, like maybe last year's annual meeting minutes. And the ballot that is mailed with the notice is typically called like a, uh, an absentee ballot or a mail-in ballot. And that ballot can be mailed in prior to the annual meeting um, or whatever, sent in by email or however it's handled. That ballot may not be able to be used at the annual meeting because it's, you know, a a mail-in ballot or it's a type of ballot that isn't the ballot that you get that night at the meeting. And so some associations are really strict on that and they say you can't use the mail-in ballot when you're voting in person. You have to use the in-person ballot the night of the meeting. And if that's the case, you know, it's the same ballot. It just is worded differently, you know, at the top. So I would just follow their directions and um, fill out another ballot at the meeting. The pivot on this, of course, is if you don't want to fill out the ballot at the annual meeting, mail it in or, you know, use the absentee ballot and mail it back to them or get it back to them before the annual meeting. And then you won't have to worry about it the night of the meeting. Next question, number 37 is my question is about the missing section in chapter 16 for granting the declarant the authority from the state to allow this entity to govern or restrict homeowners. Is this something you can talk to? Chapter 16 is missing in the definition for declarant and a section granting authority to declarant for restricting homeowners. The next best option is in chapter nine, ARS 33-1202-12, and point 13. However, 33.18.02.4b says planned communities are not condos. Any idea how the courts or law will handle the period of declarant control without the declarant having authority from the state? Okay, a couple of thoughts. You should look to your association's documents on the developer, you know, how long that they can have, you know, the voting rights as the developer and how long they have declarant control. That would be what I would recommend first. Go to the documents. Um, I'd have to look particularly at the section that you are, you know, stating particularity, which kind of exceeds the scope of uh, this first Fridays. But I'm not exactly sure what you mean by chapter 16 is missing the definition for declarant. But what I can tell you is that if you are wondering how courts will handle the period of declarant control, which is your question, they will be looking at the CCNRs for the association. And what the CCNR say regarding the declarants, that's the private contract, what it says about how long the developer will be in control. Okay, next question, number 38. We love listening to your Friday Ask a Question every month. 
Platt states the HOA is responsible for maintenance of the perimeter walls. Our CCNRs are somewhat vague, indicating HOA maintenance on common area and lists several items. However, the word walls are not included. I am referring to the side of the wall that faces common area and abuts to lots. CCNRs indicate that party and shared walls are split for maintenance and repair. Does the plat have precedence over the CCNRs in this case? We have a cheat sheet talking about the hierarchy of governing documents. It's called What is a Community Association? We're going to be sharing that with you here. I mean, traditionally, the plat does have precedence over the CCNRs. The order is the plat, CCNRs, articles, bylaws, rules. However, I've done a number of these wall issues over the years, and I can tell you that I'd have to look at the language, what it says in the plat, you know, because it sometimes the wording of the documents, you know, is unclear. So it does state that the HOA is responsible for the maintenance of the perimeter walls, but it doesn't say, you know, which side. And if the CCNRs are say that typically what the CCNRs will say is the the association is responsible for the side of the wall that faces common areas. And the other side, you know, that faces the lot, the owner is responsible for. And I think that probably would be enforceable here, even what you're saying. I'd have to see the CCNRs specifically um, and the plat specifically to give a formal opinion on it. But I hope that answers your question. So the plat is above the CCNRs, but I'm not sure that the language that you're giving me here today says that it's 100% maintenance of the perimeter walls because the CCNRs do clarify that the HOA is responsible for the side that faces the common areas and the owner is responsible for the side that faces the a lot of the owner. And appreciate you making the comments about listening in on First Fridays. We love doing this and we're so happy that you're here listening with us every month. Okay, question number 39. How can my board do planning sessions and work on strategy without breaking the open meeting law? Our board is all new this year and having a hard time coming together. Management is really lacking and all and the all new board wants to make changes, get the community on the right footing. Help us with this open meeting law and what can and can't be talked about. Okay, a couple things. I don't know how large your board is, but less than a quorum can have a planning meeting to discuss strategy and you know where you're going to go. So that's one loophole or pivot around the open meeting law. Another thing that you might want to do, look at our cheat sheet on the Eisenhower method. Um, And it's basically how to accomplish tasks in your association. I wrote that because I was frustrated with how things were going in my association when I was on the board. And I was exposed to the Eisenhower method of solving problems through a graduate program that I was uh, a student in. And so basically, a lot of associations are in this situation, right? A new board comes in. There's a ton of problems. Maybe the management company is needs to be changed. That's one of your problems, right? And you're just basically faced with like 20 or 30 things that are like everything's falling apart. We don't have any money. Where do we go from here? So, you know, what I found, and I'm honestly serving on my board, we had that same situation where I was like having sleepless nights, just worrying about all the problems that we had and how, how were we going to overcome them? I think I can tell you from firsthand experience of serving on a board and helping many boards through difficult problems would be that there's always one or two key key people on your board who are the get it done people. Those people should spend time outside of a board meeting thinking about 
how can we make this situation better? If they don't have the skill set or they don't know exactly where to start, get the Eisenhower cheat sheet out that I, I told you about. And um, that helps you write down your problems and then prioritize them based upon whether they're urgent and important or just urgent or just important. And then it helps you figure out, okay, if we've got 30 problems, what are the five that I need to start with? The ones that are urgent and important. Um, it also would be really beneficial for your association to reach out to our firm. I have helped many associations solve very difficult problems, um, including my own association. Having just a short strategy session, having one or two less than a quorum of your board, having a strategy session with our firm or having the whole board have a strategy session with our firm to help you come up with a game plan, action plan for this year would be a beneficial use of money. And you don't have to include the management company if you don't want to include them in that meeting. Um, so hopefully I've given you some suggestions. Less than a quorum is one way to meet. Or you just meet and you make it an open board meeting. You don't have to have the management company there, you know, if you don't want to. If you want to have a whole majority of the board there, then you make it an open meeting and, you know, just do it in that fashion. Or you have less than a quorum and don't make it an open meeting. Okay, next question, number 40. It looks like we have three more questions and then we're done for today. Is there any law or rule that requires a management company to track how many renters are in a gated condo community? How about a title company or lender track this? Okay, so there is no law or rule that requires a management company to track how many renters there are in a gated condo community. Okay, that's not something that is a requirement. However, there may be times when this will come into play. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac have all kinds of different um, lending requirements that they have. And um, in order for a buyer or an owner in your association to get one of these um, federally subsidized loans, one of the requirements is, is that the association be an approved community if you're a condo. And in order to be an approved condo, you have to fill out like a questionnaire that answers a lot of questions about your association. And one of those questions may be, um, how many owner-occupied units are there? How many rental units are there? What's your reserve account balance, et cetera? And so there is no law that requires associations to track the renters, but this could come into play if somebody's trying to get financing um, from the government. And if, you know, to get a lower rate, interest rates are a very hot topic right now in our country. And so, you know, this could come into play then. So, are you required to be a condo that is has this certification so that you can get this lend so that owners can get this lending? No, you're not. Is it helpful to your owners to do this? Yes, it is. And our firm helps associations do this. So if you're an association that wants to get on this approved list so that your owners can get um, FHA um, and Annie Mae and Freddie Mac financing, we can help you do that. But there is no law or rule that requires you to have that information at your fingertips. It can be easily determined by looking at the member list and knowing the manager or the board should be able to determine quickly if the property is owner-occupied or if they have a renter in there just by looking at the property address and where the mailings are sent. Um, that's a pretty good indicator. 
do title companies or lenders track this? Um, I did talk about the lenders, the Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. There may be some private lenders that also do this. Title companies, to the best of my knowledge, do not track this. Okay, question number 41. A homeowner received an architectural approval in March of 2022. Our bylaws state that if work has not been started in the 90 days, the approval is null and void. They were sent a notice on this. The homeowner attended a meeting this month and said they were starting work. The architectural committee told her she must reapply. She submitted her request and started work three days later without a new approval. A cease and desist letter was sent to this owner. The new request is denied. What are the options for the committee? Okay, one thing that I would say is, okay, so they, they submitted an application a year ago, right? 11 months ago or 12 months ago, and it was approved. Your bylaws state that if it wasn't started in 90 days, the approval is null and void. But did your approval letter state that? That's important. If your approval letter didn't state that, meaning this approval is your, this project is approved, you have 90 days to complete it. I really think you have trouble on this if they are moving forward with the same thing that was approved. So think about that. The other thing that I would say is why was the new request denied? Um, is it because the new request is different? I think it looks bad if you approved it in March, 2022, and now you're saying um, we're denying it even though it's the same thing, I think that it looks bad. So I would say on this one, try to work this one out because if they're doing the same thing that they was approved in March of 2022, you know, yes, they didn't do it in 90 days, but I don't know if your approval said it had to be done in 90 days or it was null and void. Just because it's in the bylaws, yes, that's helpful, but it would have been better to have it in the, the actual approval letter. So work this one out. This is not one that you want to make into World War III because it's not a case that you likely will win. Okay, last question, number 42. Can an HOA restrict benefits and access to common elements like rental storage to owner occupants and exclude from owners that don't live year-round that may rent their condo? You know, I don't know enough about this situation to be able to comment on it with knowledge. So Typically, if you have rental storage in your community or you rent the bike area or whatever, typically that should be available to any owner that would want it. If you don't have enough for any owner that would want it, then you should establish some sort of a fair lottery system so that an impartial vote can be taken to select who gets to use it and for how long. Okay, so that's it for today. We did 42 questions um, in an hour and a half, which is great. So thank you so much for being with us here today for our March 2023 First Friday virtual event. We had over 56 attendees today on Zoom at 20, 20 live viewers on Facebook. So really great turnout today. Over 75 people were here joining us today. Don't forget about our March 2023 Virtual HOA Condo Academy class number three on Tuesday, March 21st from 11 to 12 p.m. Uh, we have probably the most popular topic that we ever talk about, and that is duties and responsibilities of serving on your board. And we're also going to cover during that session how to handle board member burnout. Also, the City of Surprise is hosting an in-person HOA Academy this spring, and we are excited to be a part of it. We are going to be discussing how to deal with difficult owners, short-term rentals, hot topics, and more. And this event's going to take place on March 15th, 
2023 from 5.30 to 7.30 p.m. at Surprise City Hall. You can find out more information on all of these seminars at our website at mulcahylawfirm.com and click on our upcoming events or seminars. Thanks again for being with us here today. I hope you have a great St. Patrick's Day. I hope to see you at some of our future virtual classes that we're teaching in March. Um, if not, I'll see you at our next live virtual First Friday event, which is going to be held on Friday, April 7th, which is Good Friday, right before Easter. Hope to see you at any of these events over the month of March or on April 7th. Take care, everybody. Have a good month. Don't forget, our free cheat sheets are available for download at mulcahylawfirm.com. Please go to iTunes or your favorite podcasting platform and leave us a rating and a review. 